right. Ready, gentlemen? Where's <laughs> <laughs> my, um, my stylist? Oh, <laughs> uh, you ready, Michael? Yes. <laughs> just wondering who that person is above me. You just dragged him uh, off the street. Oh my goodness. Right, let's get started. So hello everybody. Uh, I'm very excited today uh, for the next uh, edition of In Conversations with Changemakers. This is my opportunity to sit down with uh, individuals in our society that genuinely have an impact uh, in the organisations that they work, uh, on citizens, on communities um, and the, the economy as a whole. So today uh, I am really, really excited to have with me um, now, Peter, I'm going for it. Uh, Peter Mustafariadis. Excellent. Whoa. Oh Fantastic. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Thank you very much. Thank and you know, what my you know what my name means, don't you? Uh, you know, no, why would you do that to me, Peter? You know I don't know what it means. <laughs> well, the name Musafir in over 800 languages across the world, extending all the way from uh, the, the Great Wall of China throughout Central Asia, all the way to the Balkans, to Northern Africa, throughout the Middle East. It means the visitor, the traveller. It was the name that was given to my grandfather because he used to love visiting people. He used to love travelling all the time. And somehow I've got that gene in me and I've got that wow. wanderlust gene in me. Yeah, so wow. you can call me Peter the Traveller. Thank you. Well, yeah, I think you've just given our audience today, Peter, an insight to your character and your passion. Um, so, so, so Peter, Peter is the, the CEO and, and founder of Cultural Infusion uh, and, and Diversity Atlas. And Peter's joined by Michael Wormsley. I can say that, Michael. I want to hear what, what Wormsley means as well. And uh, Michael is the, the Chief Experience Officer. Am I yeah. correct? Yes, a great That's author. That's right, really, yes. Well, <laughs> my name comes from Lancashire and it means uh, wood by a lake. There you go. That's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> that, that paints a picture. Oh, look, it's a fascinating thing when you when you look to see the cultural heritage of names, you know, because it cuts across all sorts of different dimensions. It, it's really quite fascinating to ask. Uh, and where does your name come from? Oh. Are you asking Lily Adi Amo? Adi Amo is the, the Smith of Nigeria. Um, okay. So make of that whatever you like. <laughs> okay, so so in what language are you are you aware? Of? Oh, you see, you've made an assumption there that a I've been to Africa, b I know where I'm from in Africa, uh, <laughs> and c I've traced my family history to know to be able okay. to answer those. But I I'm going to task you with that um, challenge, uh, Peter. Thank you. Well, I'll go to Google and try to look up the etymology of the name and see. I'm sure it means something, and I'm sure, yeah, and, and I'm sure it's related to so many other languages. And there's so uh, many stories. Course, I'm sure it is. But listen, today's not about me. Today's about the Google. So, so Peter, you've got a very impressive and colourful um, bio, which I'm not going to read out. I want you know. Can you just tell us a bit about a bit more about yourself and and what led to you creating, launching Cultural Infusion, and after that, Diversity Atlas? 
Absolutely, Lily, and thank you very much. I get this question, get asked this question all the time, and I'm not too sure where to start from. So maybe a good place for me to start from is uh, my parents' milk bar. They had this, you know, convenience store in the western suburbs in Newport. I grew up behind the milk bar. Uh, most of the people that came into the milk bar didn't speak English. My parents barely spoke a word of English. My mother, who's been living in Australia for the last 65 years doesn't speak a word of English. How did she communicate with so many people from so many different cultures? And it just goes to show that language is only one aspect of communication. So I suppose in many ways that was my introduction to cultural diversity. I then went on and had a career in the arts. I studied uh, symphonic conducting in what was then called Czechoslovakia uh, before it split in the early 90s. I spent about eight months in Italy and, uh, and a short stint in uh, uh, in the Midwest in America. So I spent about four years studying conducting, returned to Australia. And during that time, I started to work with uh, many different communities. And there was always this, this theme of me bringing people together, trying to build uh, social cohesion through the arts, uh, trying to tell the story that we're that we're all connected, um, and that uh, just led to uh, you know, events. Uh, starting to work on uh, uh, organising major presentations for a whole range of different organisations, such as the United Nations. I produced nine Australia Day concerts for the state government of Victoria here. But all along, I started to realise that events wasn't enough, that I needed to move into this education space. So I spoke to my partner uh, and I said to her, look, I want to come up with a name. This is now 2000, around 2002. I need to come up with a name that I can start delivering programs into school that are going to really start to create sort of, you know, uh, uh, sustainable outcomes and yeah. really create uh, uh, a behavioural shift in thinking um, around a cultural diversity uh, and embracing the other. And she said to me, you and all your ideas, go and get me a cup of tea. Don't forget to leave the tea bag in there and two <laughs> teaspoons of sugar. I was so excited. I was like a little, I felt like a little kid. I ran up the hallway, ran to the kitchen, put the kettle on. I came back and I started spilling the tea and then I, I gave her that mug and I started talking. She said, shut up. <laughs> I was petrified. And she, as she was dunking the tea bag in the mug, she looked up at me and I thought, uh-oh, I felt like Atlas. I was carrying the globe on my shoulders <laughs> and she smiled and she said, that's it. You infuse people with culture for as long as I've known you. That's all you do. You infuse people with culture, cultural infusion. And that's how the name came about. So it was about infusing the other with culture and also through that process, discovering yourself through telling someone about your story, learning about their story. So this is, I suppose the crux of what we what we try to do. It's trying to mix with people who aren't like ourselves. Because the moment we start not mixing with people who are not like me, then we start to open up our hearts and open up our minds. And we need to do that more than ever now. And why do I say that? If you go back to 1988, when Tim Berners-Lee had not yet invented the World Wide Web, a year later, he invents it. And that transforms the whole world. Why does it transform the whole world? Because we have this huge period of massive economic globalization without globalization of values and ethics. And we start to find ourselves in what we call this super diverse world where mm. time and space are compressed. I mean, mm. imagine trying to have this conversation 30 years ago. It was not possible. But no. the importance of being able to relate to the other 
has become integral to peace, to social cohesion, to development, to, to, to building societies that uh, are really going to uh, be able to create settings that we can start to bring aspects of our identity that we couldn't bring beforehand and, and, yeah. and the importance of that. So I think, uh, you know, this is all led to Diversity Atlas. And why is it led to Diversity Atlas? Well, six and a half years ago, Reza Moyeni, my CTO, comes to me and says, you talk about cultural diversity all the time. You know, you're, you're raving on about it. because I'm a person who have metrics. What, do you, what does this mean? I don't know what this means. So it was around that time we undertook the arduous task of uh, conducting this literature review of, you know, 300 literature reviews and we disaggregated cultural diversity into four pillars. And then we started to, to, to create a whole lot of metrics around that. And now we have Diversity Atlas, which is starting to be used by, you know, some multinational and intergovernmental agencies across the world uh, with the view of, you know, making their settings more representative, more inclusive, more equitable through a data-driven approach. Michael, I can ask you, how did you come into the cultural infusion lens or the diversity atlas lens, or are they one of the two things that are attracting to the organization? I'm sorry, Lily, I barely understood a word you said. <laughs> You're filtered through some sort of device. Someone must be listening to our conversation here, Lily. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of watching Doctor Who as a child. I was having nightmares. <laughs> it's my. It's my, my, is that better? My, yeah, okay. Yes. So, 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 so the, 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 the question I had there, Michael, was around um, what brought you into the organisation? You know, you know where, did you come in through the cultural infusion lens or the diversity atlas lens? Are they one of the two things? Uh, and how do you know? Was it Peter? You know, what, what's your history and background that got you to here? Yeah, well, what got me to cultural infusion was a lectern. Um, so I, <laughs> I was doing an event in a, a place I used to work at and we needed um, a lectern for it and uh, one of uh, my colleagues knew of someone who had a lectern and uh, brought it in. And, I didn't expect um, this by the way. <laughs> sitting around the office for a long time I felt very guilty and I said look I must return this lectern to its rightful owner and uh, Cameron at the time said, oh, it doesn't matter. There's no huge hurry for it. I said, no, no, I, I, I must take it back. So anyway, I returned the, lect the lectern from its uh, true owner, who was Peter. And uh, we caught up and, um, you know, our Greek heritage and connections were, were revealed. And, and there was just no, <laughs> there was no going back. Um, he started to talk about the work that he was doing and the platform. And then I, I suppose a couple of years after that, uh, we spoke and um, he was at the sort of stages then of globalising, commercialising the, the platform. And my background is essentially startups with, with people and data, more marketing technology and HR tech. And, you know, I've, I've worked in all sorts of diverse teams over the years, have built diverse teams. I, I was always pretty motivated to not work with people like myself um, even before <laughs> you know DNI became a thing uh, <laughs> and you know this work just seemed to be so important um, and the it, yeah the stars aligned and 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 now yeah. we're 
you know, effectively married uh, corporately now. (laughs) (laughs) And can you, Michael, just before, can you just tell me a bit more about the platform? Like, Peter, you've touched on it in regards to, you know, someone needing metrics within the organisation. So what is this platform, Michael? Um, If, you know, what's your elevator pitch on it? Yes, well, the the big challenge organisations have uh, is trying to understand who they are. And they don't have the data that tells them that. What I've seen is an explosion in data around marketing technology. It's now a $129 billion plus industry spent on technologies to better market to people and better understand customers. Yet when you look at an organization, any organization, they typically understand and have much more data on their customers than they they do their workforce. In the last few years, we've seen an incredible shift now, positively, well behind time around the value of diversity and inclusion and the moral responsibilities of social justice. Um, Mm. And and it's great to see this, but then you've got a lot of organizations who are trying to build more inclusion, more equitable outcomes, but but they don't have the data. Mm. And it's really hard to run a marketing campaign if you don't understand your customers, try working on um, any project that includes and wants to include everybody to, to make better social outcomes and, and create more inclusion. Um, and that stems from the government census, you know, which typically excludes a lot of people in the questions yeah. that they ask, right the way through to any organisation that uh, sometimes they, they say to us, we're not very diverse. There might be 500 people that work there, but uh. they're only looking at it through a very narrow lens. So we, we just reveal the actual diversity and really uh. act as a catalyst to then help organisations become more diverse, um, create benchmarks so they can track progress and and create more uh, effective inclusion strategies. Uh, so Peter, wh- why did you feel like you needed to build something from the ground up? Did these sorts of tools exist already? Excellent question, Luli. I think that all stems back to technology once again. If you wanted to do something like Diversity Atlas, Uh, 20 years ago, there wasn't the computing power. There probably Mm. wasn't the computing power 10 years ago. And there are massive data sets that sit in the back end of Diversity Atlas. We have something like 45,000 categories uh, around different aspects of identity. Most of those are around, you know, languages, you know, religions, worldviews, cultural heritage, national cultures. Um, uh, It's it's quite vast. And, you know, I, I suppose the reason... Uh, for developing these tools, I started to realize that organizations were missing out really quick, very quickly. They they weren't recognizing who they were. They were mm. good at understanding who maybe their audiences were, but mm. they weren't focusing on uh, the sort of internal approach. And, and, and as a consumer of so many different aspects of, you know, stuff that's been given to me all the time, Many times I didn't see myself in the other. You can't be uh, what you can't see. And I didn't feel uh, uh, valued. And I thought, well, if I'm, if, if I'm like this, uh, I'm sure there's so many others who are feeling exactly the same thing. So the value proposition was there right away. You know, organisations could start to become more reflective, you know, more representative of the communities they're del- delivering services uh, to. And that, that was one of, the, uh, one of the ideas that sort of drove diversity atlas as well so organizations can go you know what uh if we can if we can start to build workforces 
that are reflective of the community, not mm. only will it lead to better um, better outcomes, but it'll, it'll lead to better social cohesion. It's going to mm. lead to uh, us becoming more innovative, more mm. profitable outcomes. Mm. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And, and you know, there's hundreds of studies out there that have been done by McKinsey and Deloitte and so many other organisations about uh, you know, representation. And the genesis for this idea for us was one of the laws of recursive variety, which is the principle of thermodynamics, which states that if, if a system isn't as equally as varied as the environment it's operating in, it's going to create tension. It's going to disappear. Mm. And this happens. I mean, if you think on a macro level, what that looks like in a place like Myanmar, where you have civil society organisations and the military police uh, and, um, you know, government departments that don't even have the linguistic competency mm. of the communities they're operating in. You know, think of the impact that has in terms of trust. Think of the pandemic mm. now and how that's highlighted the disproportionate impact that these blanket approaches are having on communities where mm. the gap is getting wider, where um, those who have are going to have a lot more and those who don't have are going to have less. Mm. And then start to think about how if governments were able to collect data, how they could start to see, maybe see the relationship between uh, culture, socio-cultural dimensions, and maybe vaccine hesitancy, or maybe reactions uh, to an ethnicity. We know there's a huge relationship between mm. ethnicity and health. So I'm just sort of just throwing a few ideas out there. Mm. So for us, it's about how do we develop this global classification of how we understand humanity? And there is no global classification. Mm. And all governments across the world approach this differently. If you go to the UK, they have four different categories in the sense of white. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's absurd. Mm. And they conflate ethnicity and race. Well, hang on, they're two completely different things. Mm. You know, race is this sort of social construct, and it's very, very important because mm. we know that people discriminate, you know, others for how they look. Mm. Uh, but ethnicity is you, you, you cannot conflate these two different aspects of identity and that happens mm. with so many uh, so many mm. areas of how we collect data yeah so we we, we know as you, you've touched on it there's lots of research and reports that, that, that support the need for diversity and the need for inclusion and the impact and the value that has yet it's not often a business priority where it's actually carried through in regards to the DNA of an organization. So how do we close that gap? Do you think by organizations having a, a mechanism or way to, to measure and report on the impact is, is a way to help this become the universal way of being? I think that's exactly it. I think it's, you know, if you look at how companies have evolved in terms of their marketing, I always sort of relate it back to their, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the marketing team would meet once a year and decide, are we going to target men or women? And yeah. now, <laughs> yeah. now it's, you know, we're targeting people with blue eyes or brown eyes this second, yeah. this minute. Um, it's just personalization gone, gone nuts, really, yeah. but it's but it's really effective. But when it comes to again the, the workforce, um, how do you go about understanding who you are what are the the metrics and you know as peter was saying that's that's the work that hadn't been done before it's been analyt analytically neglected um and poorly defined for for years um there, there is no standard and it's creating all sorts of unintended consequences uh. and you know if you look at in france for example their unemployment rate is close to nine percent but they've got no idea which 
groups of the community are, are perhaps experiencing higher unemployment than others and therefore they mm. can align strategies or infrastructure or education or other services that target these people and include them more because they don't know that they exist. So mm. having a classification process with the right intent is, is really important to help understand, you know, that sort of identity and, and, you know, create a process, create an environment where no matter what someone's identity is, they, they can feel comfortable about um, expressing that if, if they choose to. And mm. being able to, you know, come to a, um, a platform like Diversity Atlas and, and find no matter what language um, or what cultural heritage or what faith or religion or worldview um, they have, been been there and we've had you know quite a few emotional responses along the way where people have found these things that they just never been asked for before they just haven't been included yeah and the, the trust part i mean you know you know you know data and data integrity and privacy and all those sorts of things are, are talked about a lot um so you know it, it's you know do you find with the organizations and the companies you work with that the workforce are happy to participate in these types of of, of studies um you know yeah. it's you know what's a good engagement you know regards to workforce participation yeah it's a really good question and it all comes down to the context i think people um certainly experience you know fatigue when it comes to surveys and things like that um often they they're asked things things never change they never see the results so making it uh really engaging in terms of the experience and short instant results is what we've worked really hard on to provide, which which helps in participation, you know, just being able to send back sound bites like, you know, there are 52 languages that are spoken in this this team, you know, suddenly people think, well, wow, that's that's incredible. I didn't realize we had such a broad depth of, of language or place mm. of birth or ancestral heritage. Um, so it's it can be a really engaging way. But again, it's got to it's got to be communicated from the top. And I think the thing that we often see lacking is if you if you look at just about any organization and what their kind of corporate vision is you know whether it's amazon netflix sap microsoft hewlett-packard they've got you know generally really great vision statements when it comes to who they they want to be as an organization but when you start to look for what their goal is around diversity equity and inclusion it's often things like we're committed to it it's important mm -hmm. and i think the challenge there is there's no real clear goal of, of where they want to go other than that it's important. Um, so there's a long way to go, but I think... Do you mean like measurable goal? Yeah, that's goal? right. Yeah, you know, yeah. Something that I can feel inspired to rather mm. than just when a company's committed to it. What, what are they actually trying to achieve? Is there mm. a particular area that they want to go? But again, if, they, if it's not measured, it doesn't get done, right? So mm. it's really mm. hard to understand where you want to go when you don't know who you are now. It's like catch-22, and I think that's mm. reflective of some of these um, broad vision statements that are a bit less defined. Mm. Um, and that creates a bit of an inertia, a bit of confusion. They're, on, they're trying to understand where the organization's going. The organization's trying to understand where it's going other than mm. that they want to be better at it. So it, yep. there's a lot of work to do, but I think there's just been such a explosion of um, investment in resources and time. There's been a 75% increase in uh, um, diversity inclusion managers um, hired worldwide now so you know the space but is, it, is it is it I mean my, my frustration sometimes and, and often with these you know is it sometimes though that the organization feels that they've done their bit by 
hiring a DNI person. You know, so no, so no, no one can ever accuse them uh, if it's not being a priority because look, we've got Peter, the DNI manager. Yes, uh, yeah, you know, that's it, right. It's a yeah. really good point. I came across a, a new term recently called greenwashing, which is precisely that. And I think I just don't feel that's got any legs anyway. I think people mm -hmm. will see through that because. You know, let's not forget the, the reasons why this is important, right? It's, it's not just for the workforce. Um, the workforce and talent, you know, in particular in the tech mm. industry, mm. Um, you know, are going to look at these types of things. You know, who mm. do I want to work for, company A or company mm. B? Mm. You know, if company B has seemingly more commitment, more activity, uh, more information, more data around what they're trying to do in this space, that's mm. really important to more and more people now. But it's not just coming from the workforce, it's coming from customers. You know, customers yeah. want to know about what the what this company morally stands for and what they're doing. And if, mm. if that doesn't align with their own values, well, they're going to shop somewhere else. But yeah. we're starting to hear it come from investors as well. You know, investors are now um, asking for their organisations that they invest in full mm. transparency when it comes to uh, diversity um, mm. within a very short period of time. And that's not just around gender, it's, it's diversity beyond gender. Mm. So there's, you know, you, you've got the pressure from your workforce and your new talent, um, how you retain staff, you've got pressure from customers, you've got pressure from investors, but also communities. Mm. Um, you know, communities are customers and, and potential staff as well. Um, so all these, all these um, external as well as internal factors come into play. Mm. So what, what, what's what's next for you? So Peter, are you doing work with government? I mean, it's you know, I, I'm super excited about this, and you know, we, you know, obviously <laughs> there, there, there's a few initiatives we're trying to get off the ground um, with you, with you know, with tech diversity. But Peter, yes. are, are you doing any work already with um, government in Australia or anywhere around the world? Yeah, yeah, we are. We're, we're doing a lot of work. We've uh, we've had some think tanks that have started to embrace the tools so they can understand their workforce. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some. Uh, there's a multinational company uh, we can't actually announce yet that we're working with, mm -hmm. uh, and we're doing a global mapping of their workforce. There's a whole range of other organisations. There's universities. There's a mining company we're speaking to. Uh, you know, there's a bank here in Australia that's you know adopted Diversity Atlas, and they're recognising that. You know, if they want, if they meet. If they want to do something and they really want to create a, a genuine uh, impact in this area, they need to take this data-driven approach. And I think mm. that's why, and what we've got is we've got the tool. That's what Diversity Atlas is. It's mm. basically, mm. it's the enabler. It's going to give you these, these comprehensive insights, not only into, uh, you know, uh, um, into the extent and type of your culture, but also um, a whole range of other demographic dimensions of diversity. And, and the point I want to make here is that we really want to take this intersectional approach at, and Mike touched on gender there. And at the moment, uh, in many parts of the world, uh, when people are thinking of diversity, they're just thinking of it in terms of gender equality, and mm. gender parity, and, and that's creating all these unintended consequences, uh, mm. which people aren't talking about. And, and I'm finding myself now on uh, boards where whilst there might be more a, 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 a gender equality, uh, there's almost no cultural diversity on that board yeah. now. There's, yeah. there's almost no reflection of the community. Yeah. And it's almost like the uh, the power has been consolidated to one group. 
Mm, yeah. So, so and, and we're seeing this too in a whole range of other areas. You know, we're seeing this when our governments, uh, in the when they started to introduce the multicultural policies, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, they were giving so many opportunities, and then Howard came along and he and he started to claw back and started to close down all these institutions. Uh, and and what we're seeing now is that um, a lot of us who don't sort of uh, don't see ourselves in the cultural hegemony are almost missing out. Mm. Right. Mm. You know, we're not sort of we're not considered part of this 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 national culture. And what we're saying is, no, we can contribute to this national culture. We can contribute to this national com- conversation, and we can make you actually more relevant in this increasingly globalized world. Mm. And is it is it easy to to find? I mean, any initiative of this sort of nature, uh, you know, needs good leadership. Right, and it needs someone to be the champion to spearhead it and take it forward. Yeah. Um, is it easy to find the leaders uh, who have the, you know, you know, you know, and we we like to think that people should do it because it's the right thing to do. But let's, you know, let's face it, you know, people are busy. They they have day jobs. They have KPIs, uh, and I think you know, unless it's directly aligned to their KPI and how they're going to be measured in gold, um, as we've seen with 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 the pandemic, and you know. The people, as you said, Peter, you know, the people um, most heavily impacted the minority groups. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, when things get tough, things like, you know, initiatives like DNI um, tend to drop further down the, the, the agenda. So, I mean, I guess, you know, you know, from, do you see from an Australia's point of view, um, is it a priority consideration around the need to address the, the lack of diversity across workforces, governments? Mm. representation of communities well, well i think the fact that there's an explosion of dei managers right across yeah. the globe and also in australia you see them advertised all the time and mm. and most of the time it's someone who's gone off and done a short course for a few weeks uh, <laughs> read a few chapters of a book and all of a sudden there's a diversity equity and inclusion manager. <laughs> and, I, and i get that because it's a new yeah. area at yeah. the end of the yeah. day and it's and it's a, such, a, such a huge area because when you're talking diversity diversity what does it mean it means difference that's all it means simply mm. put mm. it means mm. no one thing can be diverse Diversity is an is a is a, an attribute of two or more things. So it's understanding all those aspects of identity, uh, mm. and 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 it requires a huge amount of knowledge to be able to get that. But I think that the the change needs to come from the leadership at mm. the end of the day, and it needs to it needs to have this sort of whole of governance approach. Uh, mm. and and the vision needs to come from the people right up the top who say, we want to make a commitment to this mm. uh, because when you make a commitment to it at that level and then it starts to embed itself in policies right across the mm. whole organisation. And I want to make clear here, you know, we're not about uh, essentialising culture. We're not about boxing people or putting them into a no. group. We're about recognising that we all have something to contribute to this conversation and that organisations can really benefit, from, you know, from this process and say okay you know we're all different but this is the vision of the organization that we all need to subscribe to and yeah mm. and we might operate within a within a in a, a within a national culture and we need to also recognize as a national culture because when we talk mm. about culture what culture are we talking about we're we talking about the organizational culture are we yeah. talking about the ethno-linguistic culture of an, an individual what they think mm. on a daily basis to an organization are we talking about um you know the uh you know the the national culture that a country wants to give out there mm. and they mm. all create tension so the quicker that organizations 
can start to recognize those different dimensions and start to take this nuanced approach, they're going to benefit out of this. It's, mm. a, it's For me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, just think of multinational companies that do mergers all the time. You mm. know, depending on what jurisdiction, you know, 70 to 90% of them fail. Uh, yeah. Think of how a, a tool like Diversity Atlas can play an integral role. Mm. On, even on a small organization, when we use the tool with... Um, uh, a, a whole group of orchestras here in Victoria, uh, they realised they only had one participant out of 500 that had an African, uh, the, the, had an African heritage. And I thought, jeez. Oh, that's, that's my professional career, I think. And, and they count me as that. And, you know, yeah. you know I have it by name. And that, that is <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, and that is about it. And that's what, and they thought, well, we can start to advocate. We can start to create pathways. And then yeah. they recognised that they didn't have not one person from a First Nations background. Yeah. And they thought, well, let's set ourselves some, some some targets over the next five years where we go, you know what, we're 500. Let's say in five years' time we can have 15 people because that would be 3%, and 3% of our you know community is made mm. up of people of a First Nations background. Let's work towards that. So how does a tool like Diversity Atlas come into that well, it gives you that data, and then you can start to create these benchmarks, you know, over a period of time that you can work towards. No, that's brilliant. And, and as you know, I mean, it, it's I'm I'm a huge advocate of the potential of what this this platform enables. And you know, with tech diversity, and I've worked in the tech sector now for, for twenty plus years, uh, and it, it's well known and well documented the lack of diversity in our in our industry. Uh, yet, um, in the twenty years that that, that I've been working in tech, I've not seen a great deal of change. You know, something needs to be done differently. And I think this gives us an opportunity to approach it in a different way. And, you know, the sorts of initiatives we're talking about uh, around leveraging the platform to, to get at least, a bit, you know, an understanding and a metric of the current diversity makeup of the, the tech workforce, um, comparing it to the demographic of a state or the demographic of the country, mm -hmm. uh, identifying where there's low or no representation of parts of the community. Uh, we've been one of the biggest employers in the state. At least then we've got a starting point to understand some initiatives and programs we can run to, to, to close that gap or make a difference. But, you know, as you quite rightly said, Peter, you know, th this needs um, great leadership. Um, you know, it, it needs partnership um, and it needs commitment um, and it's commitment beyond uh, a title or a role within an organisation. Um, so, you know, we, we're behind you 110 percent. So I think you know, just in regards to a parting comment, uh, in regards, if there's one uh, message that you want to leave with our audience today or one thing they can do um, to contribute to, to what you've already developed here, Cultural Infusion with Diversity Atlas, what would it be? Uh, Michael? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm happy to. Michael, to this Michael as well. had sat back in his chair like yeah. he, he was finished. With that. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's uh, fine. Look, it, it's this. This isn't easy stuff, you know. It no. doesn't come with a manual. Um, it's, but it's, you know, the, the space is super creative, super innovative, you know, and that, that's what I love about it. Um, it, re as you said, Luli, it's it's about partnership. You can't do this on your own, um, but it does require leadership from all of us. You know, DNI isn't the responsibility of a, a DI manager; it's the responsibility of everybody. Um, it's just unlocking that potential and unlocking that that insight and understanding, um, and and not being afraid to try something different. You know, if we're going to make change, you have to do things differently. You have to mm. look at things differently. 
Um, but we get it, you know, change is difficult, um, but it's the only constant. So, you know, it's just about embracing and looking at things that are a bit different. Um, yes, they're going to create potentially different ways of doing things, but that's not necessarily um, a bad thing. In fact, it could be a very good thing. Um, so, you know, we're just looking for organizations um, and partners that are, are looking to be innovative and creative and, uh, you know, come on the journey. You know, we're all learning from each other. It, it's a super exciting time and space. No, that's great. And, and you, Peter? Yeah, uh, sort of a, just sort of a broad global <laughs> statement that I wanted to make uh, is that 75% uh, of all the conflict that we have in the world has a cultural dimension. And if you equate that in terms of dollars, it equates to something like 10% of the world's GDP. So we're, we're talking more than $10 trillion is spent every year dealing with conflict, all sorts of conflict. So we only have to gain you know, through understanding the other better. And we need, now we can through computing power and we can start to work towards a classification system that's going to really help us understand humanity better. And if we can do that, then we're all going to benefit. Mm. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you both for, you know, your time uh, and, uh, and your insight. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I look forward to working with you and seeing what we can do together.